Lord our God, we pray that the sending of your Son, we will be open to all that you desire to say to us, that you desire to do in us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Thomas Edison invented, or at least perfected, the incandescent light bulb in 1789. I would be surprised if he had any clue, any idea of where that invention was going to end up going. You know, I mean, you think of all the different kinds of of light bulbs that we have. Little tiny things you can hardly get your hands around to... Street lights and spotlights and, you know, on and on. And we use them so much, I mean, all the time, in a variety of ways. I just, I can't imagine that Edison had any concept of the kind of life change that this invention would bring. But I suspect that he also had no idea that this invention would, would be the source, the trigger for a long, long list of, of one-liner jokes in our low-level humor. You know, how many whatever does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah, we're on the internet. You can't believe how many different things there are about that. It's unbelievable. There's, I'll share, if, you know, I'll get this one out of the way right up front. How many pastors does it take to change a light bulb? No one knows, because as the pastor keeps talking about it, everyone keeps falling asleep. So, okay, we've got that one done and out of the way. How many Southern Gospel singers does it take to change the light bulb? It takes five. It takes one to change the bulb and a quartet to sing how much they long and pine for the old one that used to be in there. How many Microsoft engineers does it take to change the light bulb? None, because Microsoft has redefined darkness as the new standard. How many existentialists does it take to change the light bulb? It takes two. One to change the light bulb and one to observe how the light bulb itself symbolizes a single incandescent beacon of subjective reality in a netherworld of endless absurdity reaching out into a cosmos of nothingness. Existentialism right there. How many charismatics? Just takes one. Hands are already up. (laughs) How many many, uh, Presbyterians? doesn't take any because the lights will go on and off at predestined times. <laughs> How about Wesleyans? How many Wesleyans take to change the light bulb? What? Change the light bulb? Hey, my great-grandparents donated that light bulb. <laughs> and they were friends of Edison. Uh, How many Amish does it take to change the light bulb? What's a light bulb? <laughs> How about college students? How many college students does it take? No one knows... But will that be on the test? <laughs> My favorite is this. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? It only takes one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> change is hard for us. We, we resist change. We fight against change. We do everything in our power to keep 
change from invading our lives. And I don't care what we say about how open we are to it. There are things in our lives we don't want to change. We, we all have that. Unless, of course, you know, change becomes easy when we're the ones initiating the change, and that's a whole different thing. But we don't like change. How many of you pretty much sit in the same seat every Sunday? Yeah, I do. Uh, in fact, last Sunday, the children's choir was singing. You know, in the first service, they usually sit down there. And they had all these rows, and so I sat over there. I felt weird all morning. I just felt totally out of sync. It doesn't matter what level of schooling I've experienced. You talk about college, graduate school, whatever. First day of class, everybody comes in, sit wherever you want to. Next day, those are now your permanent seats. Not because the professor or teacher said so. It's because everybody just made it that rule. And you, you see what kind of looks you get if you try to change a seat that somebody else was in the day before for one day. We don't like change. And we resist it and we fight it. Except with prayer. Because when we talk about prayer, we, we're hoping for change. We're yearning for change. We're desperate for change. And, and we're certainly not alone. Moses wants God to change the circumstances that they're facing. And God splits the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land. David wants God to change the circumstances that the Israelite army is facing. And Goliath ends up on his back dead And they rout the Philistines. Elijah wants God to change what's happening in Israel. And he prays for God to bring rain after three years of drought. And it comes. Daniel wants God to change his circumstances in the lion's den. And God closes the mouths of those ravenous beasts. And Esther and Mordecai gathered together the exiled Israelites to ask God to change their situation and they are rescued from annihilation. And how many people come to Jesus day after day after day saying, Jesus, change this. Jesus, change that. Jesus, do something here. And Jesus brings healing freedom, and release, change. One of the most profound instances of prayer as change, I think, is is in this chapter 18 of Genesis we read a little bit ago. God is telling Abraham, look, I've I've had it up to here with Sodom and Gomorrah. Their their sin has reached the limit, and and I'm going to obliterate them. And Abraham, concerned about his nephew Lot, who lives in Sodom, petitions God and says, what if there are 50 followers of your followers in the city? Will you spare them? What about 45? How about 40? 30? 20? If there are 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? And you know what God says? Okay. If there are 10 righteous people there in the city... I'll change what I'm going to do. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of things about this story, that, um, about prayer, that amaze me. And I mean, I'm amazed at the boldness Abraham has, you know, to keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. 
And he has such confidence, and I suspect he prays with a kind of boldness and confidence that we probably don't know a whole lot about in our own lives. But what makes him more than anything is, is not that Abraham feels confident enough to boldly ask the almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe. The most amazing thing to me is that the almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe is actually willing to change his plan because Abraham prays. Maybe the question we ought to be asking about change in prayer is not our typical question. Why doesn't God change the things that I pray about? But rather, why does the almighty God change anything? Because I pray. Now that shift in focus strikes at the heart of our temptation to see prayer as entitlement. To be arrogant when we come to God. We begin to see how fortunate we are that the Almighty God would even consider our prayers a reason to change anything. I mean, remember, we are weak, fragile, fallible, sinful, and blind to the workings of the world and the workings of the Spirit. And the Almighty God sees everything, and He knows everything, and He's wise about everything. And yet the same perfectly wise God promises to respond to our feeble, stumbling, ignorant prayers. And he says, bring everything that concerns you, all those things that weigh heavy on you, all the things that you want changed, you bring them and pray. And I will hear you. Why does God do that? Why does the Almighty God Invite us to come and to pray and, and it make a difference. Because God is not some celestial banker who's just cashing our prayer checks. He's a loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And he loves to spend time with his children. And he wants to develop a relationship with his children. And he wants to do all of that because you and I are important to God. Sometimes we wonder if our prayers matter. We wonder if it makes any difference whether we pray or not. But our prayers matter to God because we matter to God. And this is why he keeps calling us to pray. Not because God needs our prayers or because he cannot act without our prayers. It's not because our prayers have some kind of magic power in them. God keeps calling us to pray because he wants us to know how much we matter to him. And God calls us to pray in order to help us see that because we matter, our prayers make a difference. I think we wrestle to believe that that's really true. I have to tell you, it's beyond my ability to process completely that the Almighty God would be affected, would do something different simply because we pray. And yet, It's exactly what we see written throughout the pages of Scripture time and time again. And it's what we see practiced in the life of God's people through the ages. And that truth changes the way we pray. But you know, there's still something else that might actually be even more significant as a dynamic of prayer as change. When Luke records the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray, 
Jesus responds by teaching them the Lord's Prayer and by challenging them to ask and seek and knock. And Jesus says the basis for all of this is the nature of God. God loves to give good gifts to his children. And then Jesus ends this teaching with these words. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit the greatest gift to those who ask him? And there are many facets of what it means for the Holy Spirit to be given to us, but I don't think any of those facets are more universal and more imperative and more necessary for us than the gift of the Holy Spirit as the means to make us more like Christ. Now, we don't always get to see the results of our prayers. In fact, sometimes we feel like we don't get to see many of the results of our prayers. But you know, that's because prayer is about the mystery of God. We, don't, we can't really put prayer into a formula. And, and we make declarations because Scripture does, but it's always in the tension that is the mystery of God, of who He is and what He knows and how He works. And sometimes we cry out to God and we pour out our hearts to God and all we can end up doing is walking by faith and not by sight. And the Holy Spirit in us does not come into us to eliminate the mystery of God or to answer all the problems and the questions and the burdens that we have. The Holy Spirit is continuing to call us to walk by faith and not by sight. And I know, I'm pretty sure that there are many of us here today who might right now be in the middle of that journey of walking by faith and not by sight. And the Holy Spirit doesn't eliminate that part of the journey, but the Holy Spirit does give us power and strength and courage to experience deeper levels of God's grace in our lives in order to shape us and to transform us and to change us into the image of Christ. When we pray, we're opening ourselves to God. We come to God acknowledging our need of Him, that we want Him and that we believe He can do something about a situation that we cannot do. And that kind of openness creates a spirit in us in which we're vulnerable to God. And it's at that point of vulnerability that God can work most miraculously in us. I sometimes wonder if God's answers seem slow to us, if God seems to be delaying his answers to us, or if God is even denying us what we pray for. I sometimes wonder if God doesn't do that in order to keep us coming back to prayer. Our tendency with things in life is that once we get them, we move on. We spend our lives building Barriers to protect ourselves from the hurts and the pains and the disappointments that are far too prevalent in this fallen, broken, hard, real world. But the more we pray, the more opportunities God has to work in us and to break down the walls and the barriers that we have erected and to shatter our false images of him and to be convicted and admonished and encouraged and affirmed by him. But we don't experience that if we don't spend time with him, if we're not in prayer with him. 
And so whatever he needs to do to take us and to, and to move us more and more to prayer, he will do because his goal is to change us and to work in us to make us more and more like Christ. Now, I often think about this issue because of an experience that we had before moving here. A couple of years before we moved because of difficulties that we were having with a family in the church who we were convinced felt that it was their calling in life to, um, to make our lives miserable. We were ready to get out of that church. And so when the opportunity came to do that, we jumped at it. And we went through all the processes of going to another church and we were right on the brink of that happening. And then the whole thing just collapsed in on us. Needless to say, we were upset, we were frustrated, we weren't real happy with God. It was hard, and it was difficult, and we went through some some troubling, trying times. But we stayed there for the next two years. And over the course of those two years, God not only worked in us, but he worked in the relationship that we had with his family so that when we left, we were good with them. And we came here without baggage that we were bringing with us. We came here with with clean hearts about our relationships with other people. And you know what's interesting is that it it didn't really help us at the time, but Thinking back, it's interesting to me that the church that we didn't go to said they didn't call us as pastor because they really didn't think we were quite ready to leave the church where we were serving. I wanted to say to them, are you kidding me? But something about what God was doing prompted them to see that in us. Because it was, and it was exactly what needed to happen. And I can say this now because it's been, you know, 14, 15 years I couldn't say it at the time, but I can say now that I'm grateful for those two years. Not just because it allowed us to come here, but because it allowed the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. As Paul concludes his first letter to the Thessalonians, he challenges them about their relationships with each other and about their attitudes concerning life and about having a spirit of discernment and and openness about the things of God. And all of that, it seems to me, as I read this passage, is wrapped up in the verse that says, pray continually. Pray without ceasing. So when he calls us to treat each other with respect and compassion and patience and forgiveness, that comes out of a spirit of prayer. When he admonishes us to have a spirit of joy and thankfulness, no matter what's happening in life, that comes out of a spirit of prayer. When Paul challenges us to to spiritual discernment and living with openness to the new things of God and to whatever God is doing and and being sensitive and open to, to all the ways in which God is working, whether they're comfortable or not, that comes out of a spirit of prayer. And even as Paul pronounces the benediction on them... He knows they won't receive it. They won't accept it. They won't hear the the joy and the blessing unless they are open to God. And that comes out of a spirit of prayer. And this kind of praying is an ongoing lifestyle of prayer. It's not only about changing the circumstances about which we pray, but it's changing we who pray.
And I have to tell you, I had, I had a number of concerns and anxieties as we were planning this prayer vigil. I was uncertain if it would be as positively received as I hoped. I was worried that maybe we were biting off more than we could chew to do three weeks. Enough people told me that they were excited about it that I thought, well, at least some people will sign up. But I didn't know how widespread that was going to be, and I worried about that. I was concerned about the prayer room and, you know, figuring that out and getting that all together and and getting that, you know, all done and what that was going to be. There was all these things that were weighing heavily upon me. I just didn't know how it was going to go. And I have to tell you, my fears subsided very quickly on the first night when we came to this together for the, the opening gathering to kick off the prayer vigil. And I was thinking maybe we'd have 70, maybe 100 people and more than 200 showed up. And as we're circling the building with candles, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I see that you're in this. But once those anxieties and fears subsided, another huge one came to the surface. What was going to happen when we were done? I didn't want 6 o'clock to come tonight and have this great service and, and we go outside and we, and, you know, we, we put up this reminder and, and we go through all of this and then it just sort of fades into our history. I, I didn't want to, to, all that happened during these weeks to, to be lost in my life and in your life and us as a, as a body of believers. That's why we're, we're trying to combat that with, you know, keeping the prayer room open and playing another vigil and trying to do that. But ultimately, if we're going to be a congregation that's defined by prayer and all the results that come from praying, then the weeks that we have been praying cannot be the end. It's got to be a catalyst for the beginning. And I would like for us to think of tonight's gathering sort of like we think of commencement, not the ending, but the beginning that propels us out from times of prayer to being people who are defined by prayer. Being people who live a life of prayer, who pray continuously and without ceasing. It just absorbs our being. As we come and as we connect with God with the spirit of prayer. And I think we'll know if that's happening by what we sense God doing in us as individuals and as a community? You know, do we see heightened levels of integrity and purity of heart? Do we see a change in how we treat each other and support each other and love each other? What about our attitudes toward, toward each other and who come to worship here and people who, who worship in other places and people who don't worship anywhere at all? Our attitude toward people who disagree with us. And even in the midst of the disagreements that our spirits are united in Christ. If you're familiar with football, you know about the, the, the last two minutes of, of the game are the most intense times. It's, it's in the last two minutes, in a close game, that's when it's won or lost. In the last two minutes that, that uh, mistakes are magnified and, and successes are heralded, it's in the last two minutes... The players and coaches become either a goat or a hero. It's in the last two minutes that the speed of play increases significantly. And normally after each play, if the offensive team has the ball, you know, the play's done, they sort of meander back to the huddle and they, they get together and the quarterback calls the next play and they walk up to the line and, 
and they go to the play. But in the last two minutes, everything goes into fast speed. And, and in the last two minutes, if you're behind and you have the ball, when the play is done, you are scrambling to get back up the line. You don't even huddle anymore. You just get up to the line and the quarterback's got code signals that he uses and, and you go. And you're trying to, to, to use as much, you're trying to use as little time between plays as you possibly can. You're trying to get as many plays in as you possibly can. And the game moves and moves and moves so fast. It's in those last two minutes that the play is fast and intense and directed, but it's very short term. It's just the last two minutes. I get the feeling that sometimes we think of prayer as sort of a two-minute offense. It's fast, it's intense, it's directed, it's short-term. Our prayer comes to life when there's a crisis. Our prayers come to life when we feel like things are slipping away from us or when we feel overwhelmed by the stuff that's coming at us. And there's a place for that kind of praying. But it ought to come out of our life of prayer. Because God designs prayer not so much as an emergency, last-ditch effort to convince Him to do something miraculous, but as an ongoing foundation of our relationship with Him. And if God is going to change us, then we have to pray. If God is going to change us, we have to be people who live with a spirit of prayer. Not just here or there, but asking God to envelop us in a spirit of prayer. I think that's why in the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster states right up front, to pray, to pray is to change. And it's not so much about changing stuff as it is changing us. As someone said to me this week, if you truly interact with God, change will come. Because you can't separate prayer and change. If nothing in us is changing, then we have to ask, are we really praying? Prayer is not just about the contemplative Moments or the moments when we're occasionally firing words at God. A call to prayer is a call to remember Christ's presence continually in every moment of our lives. There's a, there's a sheet posted on the wall next to the door of the prayer room. Our intention was that it would be the very last thing that you saw when you left the room. And you may have seen it, you may have not. But It's a powerful prayer from an anonymous uh, prayer in a 24-7 prayer room. It was written on the wall, I think, of the very first 24-7 prayer room in Chichester, UK. And it says this. What have we begun when we pray like this? What have we done? Can we ever know what seeds we sow, what lights we show, what dreams we throw? Here, playing like kids in danger places, atomic seeds, hidden graces, radiation, kingdom come. What have we begun? Here, 
we see angels burning like the sun. Here we juggle destinies. What is this thing we've done? What army gets commissioned kneeling this way? What passion finds expression when wounded soldiers pray? Are nameless heroes rising? Tomorrow's chosen ones, carriers of Jesus, what plague have we begun? What dreamer writes upon the wall? What wonders hem me in? When we lit those candles, what fires did we begin? What fires God beginning in us? Holy Father, we don't want to be people who pray and then move on to other things. We want to be enveloped in a spirit of prayer. So light that fire in us, even today. Amen.